Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. Leaving my post-secondary education, I didn't have a clear understanding of the structures I was going into, nor did I feel like I had the skills to start a project from scratch, knowing how to properly engage the stakeholders that I wanted to. I think it's a call to action that the institution of university is also maybe a bit tired and mm-hmm. we need to kind of get up with the times. One thing that's very interesting is entrepreneurship that's happening around the sustainable development goals. Um, it's, it's really exciting and pretty much every major business now has like job positions related to sustainability, regardless if they're an environment focused company or not. And Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... Fun fact, a lot of people just don't even know to identify as being part of the energy efficiency sector. Perhaps they're (laughs) like, you know, oh, I'm a construction worker. I'm a, you know, I do insulation. I'm not part of this, you know, efficiency thing you're talking about. But in in reality, you are. So I want to start by saying that the, the green job sector we mentioned it already like there's jobs and jobs and jobs that are coming that don't even exist yet because of how emerging it is Welcome to part two of our two-part roundtable discussion about Green Jobs for Jews with Gen Z changemakers Sabrina Guzman-Skotnitsky of the Emerging Youth Consultancy, Kelsey Brazil of Efficiency Canada, and Brennan Strandberg-Salmon of the British Columbia Council for International Cooperation. In part one, Ian and the panelists discussed the need to broaden the definition of a green job how secondary school educators and career counselors can best prepare youths for the green economy, and what green jobs exist beyond STEM fields. Part two is about how post-secondary institutions can adapt to a fast-changing world, ways that government-funded programs can be enhanced, and what exciting developments are happening in the private sector. This is sort of a replication of the question we asked about high schools, but what can post-secondary institutions do better? You know, what gaps can we fill? Let's go back to Brennan for this one. Sure, yeah, and actually, this is a few lessons learned from from a campaign I'm actually doing at my own university to kind of increase environmental education and, and green jobs. So the first thing would be to embed climate change and sustainability education into every undergraduate degree program. Um, and that doesn't mean like, compulsory environment-related lectures. Um, Instead, it would be like each academic department should be supported to reimagine their curriculums through a sustainable and climate-just lens. Um, Because of course, education on climate change shouldn't just be limited to like geography or environmental science students. It can be like regardless of 
a student's future career. Every person should be equipped with that knowledge and the skill sets to succeed in a rapidly changing job market and kind of understand how climate change impacts their work and to learn how they can be a part of the, the solution as well. Um, in addition to that, I think another one was to create brand new programs and certificates like related to climate change and climate justice and, and green jobs as, as these new topics emerge. And then of course, educating and training students for the future of work um, as these employment opportunities shift. And then providing also the training and support for faculty on climate change, like how to embed this new content across all of the, their programs. And I think education on these topics should take that interdisciplinary approach as we mentioned before, and it should include those transferable skill building related programs related to like systems thinking, respectful dialogue, yep. um, and just kind of building capacity for, for collective action. And to quote Margaret Atwood, not to name drop, but she has <laughs> written an article that climate change is everything change. And it's true. Yeah. This is, is yeah. not, as you said, Brennan, it's not strictly geography or environmental science. What do you think, Sabrina? What else can post-secondary institutions do better? Yeah, I think Brennan's response is very thorough and I, I, I very much agree with everything you shared. Uh, I think one thing I would add, one thing that became very apparent to me in my university career <laughs> was that like pretty much all of the STEM degrees that my university offered, as well as like business and commerce, they all had a co-op option, but pretty much none of the arts or social sciences, humanities uh, programs had a co-op option. And um, it's kind of interesting because my program, we had a course that was like service learning. So you did volunteer yes. with the organization and you did a certain amount of hours, which was a great learning experience. And I think helped me get a job later on. But I also believe, you know, we deserve to get paid for our labor, just as a commerce student who's interning for a big business uh, deserves to get paid for their labor. And those opportunities, like not only are you building your resume, you're building skills, you're building networks, you're building mentorship, uh, you're building so many things. And I think, you know, we really missed out on that in the social sciences that our programs don't have that option. It's not even mm -hmm. like, you know, some programs make it mandatory in STEM fields, but we don't even have the option most of the time. So that would have been an amazing opportunity, especially because a lot of the other, um, you know, federally funded programs that help students get job experience, those exclude, um, as we'll talk about later, probably, yeah. those exclude newcomers uh, who don't have uh, permanent residency. So if there were, you know, school programs, the, the co-ops would hopefully then include those folks. Another thing I wanted to say around this, I'm trying to remember now, um, Oh, was it really, I mean, I, I could go on a long tangent about this, but <laughs> just talking about the affordability of post-secondary institutions. One of the big reasons I talk about that, you know, how certain youth are not able to access the environmental field is because these are the same youth that often face barriers to getting education in the first place. And a lot mm -hmm. of that has to do with like location, with affordability. Uh, but we, we know that, you know, BIPOC youth, youth from remote communities, youth with disabilities, they struggle to access education, which means they often struggle to enter the workforce. And then therefore, how would they ever get into the environmental field? And especially when a lot of uh, green jobs in the traditional sense require STEM degrees, those are like even more, you know, academically rigorous. And so I think post-secondary institutions, I mean, in general, we, you know, should reduce tuition prices, but especially like, you know, 
concentrating on, you know, trying to have like grants and bursaries and scholarships in order to to make uh, education more accessible for these kinds of youth. For sure. And uh, Kelsey, I know you're kind of nodding in agreement there. Anything else you want to add on top of that? Yeah, I love what you said, Sabrina, about sort of that co-op piece. Um, I studied, it it was interdisciplinary for sure. And we had like, you know, different profs come in and we, we definitely were learning about different things, but I never felt like as a student, I had the experience to kind of get the, the real world kind of what, what would it be like to be at a non-for-profit? What would it be like to, you know, start a project from scratch and, you know, apply for funding and things like that. We did a capstone project, but it didn't quite give us that sort of real perspective. And I think the reason why I'm bringing that up is in, at least in my career, there's been a lot uh, around, you know, we really want to engage diverse communities and we really want to, you know, decolonize this project and, but it's maybe too little too late or things like that. And I feel like if that sort of project management stakeholder engagement piece was taught in post-secondary, but then also you had the opportunity to work in real life situations and understand the barriers of which like, I mean, if you're if you're really trying to meaningfully engage certain communities, it doesn't always align with, let's say, your funder deadlines. And, and so how these structures are are sometimes are hindering the ability to do a project properly. Anyway, mm-hmm. all this to say, I feel like leaving my post-secondary education, I didn't have a clear understanding of the structures I was going into nor did I feel like I had the skills to start a project from scratch, knowing how to properly engage the stakeholders that I wanted to. And so I was left to, you know, do that on my own, which is, is, you know, it is what it is. And and you find, you know, your mentors and and you find the work that aligns and and you, you study how they approach the projects. But I feel like if we just started from, you know, if people are seeking those types of, avenues of work like we need to be teaching it properly so and you wouldn't be the first person to point out this disconnect between real world experience and what is learned in university and this is a pretty broad reaching statement but a lot of people it makes me think of that musical avenue q (laughs) what do you do with a ba in english is the opening song of the show basically Mm -hmm. and i mean it's a show, it's satire, but, but there is some truth to that. And there is this disconnect between the theoretical and the practical. How to fund that, we'll get into that as we continue on in the discussion, but it's, I think it's a call to action that the institution of university is also maybe a bit tired and mm-hmm. we need to kind of get up with the times. <laughs> Which I guess is sort of how Brennan was approaching the question too, was just kind of like, why why aren't we embedding these you know things in all of our curriculum versus yeah yeah. and why why can't i get a degree in you know climate action or something like that yeah for sure talking with green teachers is produced by green teacher a registered charity in canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986 by taking out a subscription you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators 
receive each issue of our quarterly magazine and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. Lately, we've been hearing a lot about the so-called quarter-life crisis. A time after post-secondary education when job opportunities are scarce for so many. But your early to mid-twenties don't have to be a time of feeling lost. Moving on now to government-funded programs. And Sabrina, of course, you've done so much work in this and a lot of research. You authored the big report that we referred to earlier and you talk a lot about experience and you know this is the thing for anybody entering the workforce you need experience to get a job but how do you get a job that requires experience if you don't have experience in the first place so getting <laughs> that initial experience often comes from government funded programs and this is the the focus of your work and in this report you identified three calls to action so kind of briefly walk us through those calls to action yeah thank you uh for that I guess to give a little bit more background, so these uh, federally funded government programs uh, that are green job programs for youth are all kind of like work uh, learning experiences. So yes. basically uh, these organizations that apply for funding from the government uh, get wage subsidies to a certain percentage. Some are 75% of the wage, some are 50, some are 100 um, in order to hire youth in their environmental organization or doing what the funder refers to as a green job and they all define it in different ways. Um, and one of the biggest issues, as I kind of briefly mentioned, is like the exclusion of uh, folks that don't have the proper immigration status. Um, so if they're not, uh, you know, a refugee, a permanent resident or a citizen, they cannot access these programs. And my calls to action are kind of like more broad. I, I have the very um, specific recommendations uh, to policymakers on how to improve the program. So people can definitely read that up if they want to. But the, the calls to action were um, basically what you can do as someone who's not necessarily uh, in, embedded in these programs or in the decision making. Uh, so the first one was to send this report uh, to your member of parliament, telling them why it's important to you and why they should read it and take action. The other one is keeping pressure on the federal government to enact a Just Transition Act and expand green job programs for youth. So this is especially important. Um, and I know right now we're recording before the election, but this will come out post-election. But one of the big promises the liberals made was to enact a Just Transition Act to help fossil fuel workers transition to low carbon jobs. Yes. Uh, but we have yet to see that being tabled in parliament. And so we still want to keep pressure on that. But we also know that the majority of current fossil fuel workers are 40 plus and mostly white men in, you know, Alberta and, and the prairies. Um, so we also want to make sure we're expanding green job programs for young people and including uh, those more marginalized communities. And then the last call to action was talking to young people in your lives about their career aspirations and possibilities within the environmental field. And that is kind of like, uh, we've already talked about that a bit, a bit, but I think we'll talk about that more. And I think these are just ways like any person can influence. I would add one thing is just researching what is the platform of the party that won, or even your, just your representative in your constituency and making sure um, that if they do mention green jobs, hold them accountable to what their promises were. Yes. 
and all of this sort of comes in the this COVID context where there's been major spending out of necessity and there are worries about debt and there are worries about inflation. And, you know, a devil's advocate might say, well, th this all sounds great, but where does the money come from? And yeah, I mean, we know government coffers are not a bottomless pit and ultimately government is there to support the economy as needed. Are there any possibilities of, of reorienting funding, especially in this time where, again, you know, debt and inflation are top of mind for people? Yeah, um, I've been doing, you know, quite a bit of research on the environmental platforms of all the federal parties, uh, you know, prior to making my own vote. And one of the things I thought was very interesting is, well, actually, most of the parties other than the conservatives have promised to end federal fossil fuel subsidies. But what I think is really unique is the New Democratic Party wants to use that funds to help start a civilian climate corps. And that would be theoretically guarantee any young person a green job, uh, mainly in conservation, I believe. But you know, as it, I think it's a very interesting idea. And I think there's a lot of investments in fossil fuels and fossil fuel infrastructure in our country that could be, uh, you know, rerouted into helping fund green job programs. And I think there's a lot of creativity that we can have around this and around the budget. And I think what's really interesting is the partnerships that are happening with the private sector, which I think we will get into. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's also a lot of possibility there because investors are realizing that there's a lot of climate risk in fossil fuel uh, investments that used to be the safe bet. But now it's like, oh, well, yeah. there's a carbon bubble. And if it pops, we might all, you know, it's lose millions of dollars, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity there for really innovative partnerships. And I think that's both internationally and, and within Canada. Mm -hmm. Anything else, Kelsey, you want to add just about removing barriers? Yeah, I kind of approached this question a little differently. I I run my own initiative called Let's Sprout with one of my good friends, um, Siobhan. And we, so we're, we're just like a community initiative. We like to do like environmental education. We're involved in, you know, various different aspects of climate action. And one of our biggest barriers in doing work is that because we're unincorporated, government funding is not available to us. Mm. Um, and in order to be incorporated, it requires a whole lot more work on our end to like, you know, maybe we'd have to have a board and, and like it kind of restructures the entire initiative. And what's frustrating about that is like, we're, we feel as though like, you know, this is something that we've designed and something that we feel is important. It's definitely like a passion project yet we can't find funding to pay ourselves to do this meaningful work, or we can't find the funds to pay other people. Sometimes like we're kind of restricted right. to these micro grants and, you know, there's times where we have to partner with other organizations strategically to get like insurance and things. And it just really puts into perspective of like, I mean, I was 21 maybe when I started Let's Row and, you know, it was, it was a great avenue to just start, the doing and just like figure out, you know, what are avenues that are, that feel important to me. Like it, it was such a huge piece of, I guess, my, my development as a professional, yet I had to do it um, for free because I couldn't mm -hmm. find, right. And so, yeah, that's sort of, I think there, there's a lot, a lot to be said about like 
you know, youth are part of the solution and their voice matters, their actions matter, but do we really expect them to sort of start things on their own and then, and then volunteer their time their whole lives? Like that's not sustainable. So Mm -hmm. now, now that we're like a little bit older and we kind of have a bit more understanding of what's out there, we're able to kind of figure things out, but it's now become something that I feel you know, very strongly about in terms of like, when I work with kids who are in our students who are in university, like, yeah, just advising them on like, where they can look like in the nooks and crannies for some money, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. so anyway, but a little, little tidbit on that. Yeah. Looking under the, the couch cushions and uh, again, <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah. Uh, Brennan, you're still in university from that perspective, anything you want to add to this? Yeah. Thanks. I mean, Kelsey and, and Sabrina have made so many great points already. So I'll just kind of echo some of some of what they've said. And I do agree that we need a massive increase in uh, government supported green jobs for youth. Um, I actually wrote an op ed about that topic last year. And it it was also echoed by the call for action was also echoed by Seth Klein and others who, as um, Sabrina mentioned, are calling for a youth climate corps to mobilize jobs for the climate emergency, where the barriers to participation are greatly reduced, especially for um, youth in marginalized communities. And anyone who needs a job would be able to get one um, because, yeah, we need all hands on deck um, to be able to, to tackle the, the climate emergency. For sure. And Seth Klein, you mentioned he talks a lot about this in his book, A Good War, and makes the parallels to World War II and the idea of setting up these crown corporations to win the war. And one of the lines that he repeats in the book and and in a lot of the media work that he's done is, spend what it takes to win. Did you know that a subscription to Green Teacher includes access to our massive and fast-growing archive of 500-plus ready-to-use activities, lesson plans, and articles. The recording of each new webinar goes into the archive, too, and there are 120 of those and counting. To save you time, because educators never have enough of it, right? Everything is organized by topic and age group. Learn more by visiting greenteacher.com slash subscribe. We also have special rates available for bulk orders from your school, board, district, or organization. As always, all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. In today's online ecosystem of rampant disinformation, it's easy to get pulled into a vortex of negativity surrounding green jobs. Fortunately, the facts tell a different and more uplifting story. There is a fairly unhelpful narrative out there that has entered some parts of this discussion, and it's this idea that the ongoing shift to a green economy will stifle innovation and entrepreneurship and is going to shut down the market. And, I mean, to be blunt, it's it's rubbish. It's nonsense. There are so many exciting possibilities out there in the private sector, and it's not an either-or situation. And I actually had a telemarketer call me recently, and they were asking these various poll questions, and one of them was, is the climate emergency, the responsibility of government or industry. And that those were the only two options. I was like, can I put both? He's <laughs> like, well, my sheet only has the two. And I was like, well, I know you didn't make the questions. But I was like, well, if you can put both, put both. Because, yeah, 
I mean, it's absolutely not an either-or sort of thing. And uh, Kelsey, I know you've got your finger on the pulse of a lot of the excitement that's happening out there. So what's going on out there that should get us excited? <laughs> yeah, I guess for some context, um, I, I kind of play in the energy efficiency world. And right. a, lot of, a lot of my work has been around talking to a lot of folks who are in the industry doing some inspiring work. Um, and also starting to map out kind of what jobs even exist in the energy efficiency sector, because fun fact, a lot of people just don't even know to identify as being part of the energy efficiency sector. Perhaps they're <laughs> like, you know, oh, I'm a construction worker. Or I'm a, you know, I do insulation. I'm not part of this, you know, efficiency thing you're talking about, but in, in reality you are. So I want to start by saying that I mean, the, the green job sector, we mentioned it already, like there's jobs and jobs and jobs that are coming that don't even exist yet because of how emerging it is. Um, and that's, that stays true with the energy efficiency sector. And I thought I would just share like, I mean, one job that I, I think is, is super inspiring. And one of my, my friends who I met uh, when I worked for Green Schools Nova Scotia, her name's Megan McCarthy, and she started her own company called Row Carbon Labs. And she had just this, under, this, I guess, passion for like energy intelligence and she, she works with blockchain and she was kind of nerdy about those types of things, but mm -hmm. also had this deep passion for the environment and understood the like the crisis that we're in and, and, you know, the climate emergency that we're, we're all experiencing. And so she started this company to basically build like a real-time meter that helps buildings measure their energy consumption, but also um, show their energy waste. And the interesting thing about energy, obviously, like we, we waste a lot of it, but because you can't see it, I think it's a little bit of out of sight, out of mind. Sure. And so with her technology, it's, you know, in real time showing you ways that you can save energy, ways that you're wasting it and what have you. And the way that we worked together as we did a, a energy challenge with grade six students um, and they had to try to, you know, save as much energy as they could throughout the weeks doing different activities. And so they learned things about like phantom power and how much mm -hmm. energy they'd save if they unplugged their projectors and things like that. And uh, I mean, the, the, the program itself was a blast and just seeing energy efficiency kind of like no pun intended, but like light the kids up and like, just like very, <laughs> nice. very much like feel ownership over, you know, these are actions I can take to help, you know, the planet. Um, but also it ended up being that we were um, doing the project and COVID hit. And so schools were closed, the students had to go home, but yet we had all these schools metered and so we could actually see what was happening while there was absolutely nobody in the school and what we found out was there were you know schools have this this ability to like bring down their energy consumption over the summer months but they didn't have this retracting um, or contracting sorry ability when like it was just an abrupt closure and so we started to be able to map what energy waste they were experiencing during the COVID months where schools were closed and we're able to, you know, connect with the folks and help save energy through those months. And had they not had that technology, they wouldn't have known, you know, both the money they're wasting, but also the energy. And so it was just kind of a really neat kind of side 
I guess, positive that came out of the project. And I don't know, I just, I really respect the work that she's doing. And I think that it's a great example of taking skills and passions and, and merging them together, like I spoke about earlier. And yeah, that's what I wanted to share. That is super exciting. And I should also say this is a fertile space for puns. All puns are welcome. <laughs> I felt like that pun was a little weak, but whatever. Yeah, it was solid. It was at least a seven out of 10. <laughs> okay, cool. Thanks, Ian. <laughs> yeah. uh, what, what else is happening out there that's exciting, uh, Sabrina? Yeah, I think one thing that's very interesting is uh, entrepreneurship that's happening around the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, because the government has put a lot of funding into like, you know, jobs or programs or projects that raise awareness in the general population about sustainable development goals. And so I've seen a lot of young people kind of take advantage of that to be able to even start their own nonprofits or social enterprises. Uh, I know even of folks who have become consultants to organizations about how they can integrate the SDGs into their operations and also integrate like sustainability and equity, diversity, and inclusion into their corporate social responsibility approach. And I think this is uh, super interesting. A lot of organizations are looking at how they can green operations. And I think um, that has to do with energy efficiency, as Kelsey was saying. But, you know, it's even as, as simple as like, you know, how much paper are we using and <laughs> stuff right. like that. And mm -hmm. how many corporate flights are we taking per year? I mean, this is pre-COVID times that we're kind of that's reduced a bit, but uh, it's still very relevant. And uh, oh, yeah. I think that's, it's a really cool uh, field to see that. I've also seen there's an organization in Ontario called Pitch It Green. And so they like have like a whole pitch competition just for green business ideas. And so there's a lot happening out there that's very exciting. Yeah, kind of like a dragon's den for green jobs. <laughs> yeah. And Brennan, you're on the precipice of being finished school, but... Yeah. I'm sure you still have a good sense of what else is out there. Uh, anything else you've caught wind of that excites you? Yeah, yeah I think there's so so many really exciting possibilities in, in the private sector too. Uh, for example, as I mentioned, I was um, helping organize the, the World Circular Economy Forum earlier this week in September. And uh, I guess for those that don't know, circular economy is like an economy without waste kind of designing out waste from the system. And it's key to kind of climate and biodiversity goals as well. And I found that there are so many inspiring examples and solutions, so many organizations, like from, you know, the smallest companies, small and medium-sized enterprises, all the way up to the largest companies in the world are kind of jumping on this idea of the circular economy and running with it and collaborating with each other um, and just creating change, ripples of change in, in that space. So um, it's, it's really exciting and pretty much every major business now has like job positions related to sustainability, regardless if they're an environment focused company or not. And every sector and industry is going to have to focus on how to address climate change. So that will also create lots of jobs for people that can work for the company and help figure out how to move forward in a more environmentally friendly way. Um, and this will be a big driver of innovation as companies redesign their businesses and products and supply chains to, to drive a low carbon economy. Yeah, there's such exciting stuff happening in the circular economy space. We actually just released an episode about circular economy and got talking about this organization in Edmonton 
that is monetizing garbage that would have otherwise gone to a landfill. And I mean, when you're talking about turning garbage into profit, like you have reached the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats. And you know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats, our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoor learningstore.ca So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent or just a general nature geek there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there Ian? Definitely. Thanks Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favourite podcast app. Sometimes, those tasked with giving advice need some advice of their own. There's no shame in admitting that you don't have all the answers all the time. So to finish off, and I I say this wanting to very deliberately end on a hopeful note, and I think we've talked about a lot of very hopeful things in this discussion, and I actually have a copy of Thomas Homer Dixon's Commanding Hope right beside me. My right hand is on the cover. What are a few things that really anybody, parents, educators, managers, other adults, people who want to support youths get green jobs with this more broadened definition of green jobs? What can they do? Hopeful tips. Start with Kelsey. I mean, my answer to this often is the same where it's, I think, listen, listen to youth when they're expressing what they're into, what uh, they're not into, but also their ideas. I, some of my most pivotal moments from when I was young was when I felt like an adult actually cared about what I had to say. And so I think that's really important. And then on a more, I guess, um, strategic note is have youth representation in your like advisory committees, in your in the work that you're doing that's like more for outside of school and and in maybe more once you're in the sector, but I think especially if you're doing programs that involve youth for the youth, there should be some sort of youth-led component. I think that it's so, so, so important. And that fits with a lot of the pedagogical shifts that we're seeing about kind of taking down this hierarchy in education. Mm-hmm. Not to say that the teacher isn't an authority figure. Of course they are, and and they have responsibilities that the students don't have, but co-learning and leading from the curiosity of students and this is a lot of the work mm-hmm. that, the, that the the great folks at natural curiosity are doing which who, whom we also just interviewed in a, a recent episode of the podcast sabrina final thoughts on what others can do yeah i i really resonate with a lot of what kelsey was sharing um 
I'm a youth consultant at the Emerging Youth Consultancy, and, and we really are kind of trying to put the light on that youth lived experience is really valuable and youth are the experts on their own lives. And so it's definitely what Kelsey was saying about listening to them about their hopes and aspirations, taking like a coach mindset to help them kind of go through like what are the potential avenues. Uh, I think one thing that COVID-19 has really shown us is that there are no, no such thing as safe or stable careers anymore. You know, <laughs> people in the most traditionally or conventionally quote unquote secure jobs lost their jobs, you know, and yeah. some people who have very unconventional jobs in remote environments really found their businesses thriving and they're, you know, having a lot of business at that time. Um, and so, you know, imposing your idea of what a safe or stable career is on you know, your child or a student is likely not only going to lead them to dissatisfaction, but also it can't really even guarantee them, you know, a permanent position or even a job that can support themselves anymore. I think we're in such a different paradigm when it comes to the way we work, but also the, you know, variety of jobs that are, yeah, now exist or not even get to exist as, as Brennan has said. So just, yeah, really encouraging those values. And I guess, kind of going back to what I said earlier, encouraging them to explore a lot of different types of work or studies or volunteer opportunities, like letting them kind of experience it for themselves first before you kind of make your, your advice. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great way to go about that. Yeah. Brennan, final word on this topic. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with, with the advice Sabrina and Kelsey have. So I think, yeah, first of all, uh, for parents, they can definitely encourage their kids to pursue an impact career where they can um, kind of follow their passion and find meaning in their work um, on a day-to-day -day basis. And along that that vein, educators should also kind of update their their teaching practices and in, instill that um, environmental and, and climate consciousness among all their students and everyone should really graduate with that knowledge of the role they can play as citizens and also in their work. And then, yeah, adults more generally should, as was mentioned, take the time to really listen to youth about our calls to action and all of the, the out-of-the-box ideas that go beyond the status quo uh, mm -hmm. we have in order to, to build a sustainable future and, yeah, make decisions alongside youth as well to uh, ensure that future generations can live well on, on a healthy planet. That's certainly been a big takeaway for me from this discussion is thinking outside the box. And ultimately what we're trying to do with this podcast is start a discussion and hope that listeners carry on these discussions in their own circles. And there's so much more to discuss with this. And I, I hope the discussion and the chatter continues and I'm speaking directly to listeners in whatever your circles are, have those discussions with youth. If you are a youth, engage with those who can guide you as you move into these meaningful careers that either do exist now or will exist. And though there are very real challenges that we do have to talk about, there is a lot of reason for hope. And again, bringing up uh, unicorns, this hope is founded in reality it's not just a unicorn mm -hmm. well thank you so much kelsey sabrina brennan we have dug into so much it's been an absolute pleasure we went way over time 
how foolish of you <laughs> to think that we could fit this into 45 minutes. And I really appreciate your time, your insights, and your wisdom. Thank, thank you. you so and thank you, Sabrina and Brennan. Really enjoy learning from you both. Yeah, thanks, everyone. It serves to reason that those who will spend the most time in the new green economy should have the most say in what they need to be prepared for it. That's why we invited our three Gen Z panelists to the roundtable. Thank you for joining us in this journey. Let's keep the conversation going. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. Okay, take two. <laughs> well, that's embarrassing. I guess we're human like, or something like that. Where are you? Yeah, where are you? <laughs> I mixed up secondary <laughs> and post-secondary. All right, I'll pretend that this was planned all along.